Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to a special episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the best in show edition. We're coming to you this holiday week with the gift of our favorite stories from 2022. These might not have been the biggest stories we wrote, but they were our favorites because of the personal importance to us, the way they stretched us as writers, or simply the fun we had while reporting them. Joining me this week is our entire dream team, Haley B. Miller, Laura Bischoff, and Jesse Balmer. Welcome, guys. Yay. Happy holidays. Yeah. And so we're going to start with... Haley. And I would love to know, what is your favorite story of 2022? So this is not the most uplifting topic by any stretch. But a couple months ago, I wrote a story about some legislation that's aiming to help survivors of sexual abuse by Boy Scouts get the money owed to them and the nationwide bankruptcy settlement that was just approved in September. It's very complicated, but basically under the bankruptcy settlement, there is a structure of sorts of how much money people are owed based on what happened to them, the frequency of the abuse, that kind of thing. But it also looks at the statute of limitations for child sex assault in your state and in Ohio. The laws are not great. Advocates say they're very unfriendly to survivors of child sex abuse because the statute of limitations is tighter than it is in other states. So under the current rules, Ohioans who were abused while they, when they were Boy Scouts would only get like 30 to 45 percent of the amount of money that would be owed to them. So I did a deep dive looking into that bill and most importantly, talk to some survivors in Ohio who are advocating for it who are sharing their stories in the hope that lawmakers will pass this legislation and give them the help they need. This is an issue that I've written a lot about before, um, statute of limitations. Specifically, I did another story earlier this year kind of looking at Ohio's laws as a whole and why they're kind of backwards compared to some other states. I did a lot of reporting on this when I was in Wisconsin as well. So it's just always been an issue that's interested me. And I also think it's really important for stories like this for issues like this to have, you know, the voices of people who are actually being impacted, especially because we're always so often just like talking to lawmakers and lobbyists. And it's really good to talk to real people. Yeah. And I think when you're talking about statute of limitations, it's easy to discuss it in like the abstract, but it is different when you have like a real person in front of you. And I hate to say real person because we're all real people, but like having somebody who's experienced it, you know, talk about why they didn't come forward sooner, why they have a good memory 30 years later, all of the like questions that you hear raised about extending statute of limitations. Yeah, and there's definitely still a reluctance to do more than this. One of the lawmakers supporting this Boy Scout bill is actually one of the most vocal opponents of statute of limitation reform in Ohio, Representative Bill Seitz. Um, But for him, this is a very narrow window. And importantly, the Boy Scouts have already basically admitted to wrongdoing and said that they wouldn't make these payments. So he sees that as an exception. But when it comes to cases involving the Catholic Church or Ohio or, State, right, Richard Strauss at Ohio State, there's still a lot of roadblocks up for these survivors who want to make any sort of criminal or civil claims. So basically, if I understand your reporting correctly, like a, a victim in New York would get a bigger settlement potentially than like a victim here just by the nature of where they live. Yep. And part of the settlement and why Ohio lawmakers are trying to take action now 
the settlement basically gave states like Ohio a year to say, you know, if you want to change your laws to, you know, apply differently to the settlement, you have a year to do it. So do you um, think we're going to do it? So as of this recording, it's still kind of up in the air whether this is going to get done in the lame duck session just because there's a lot going on. And the scout bill also got tacked on to legislation that has a ton of other amendments in it. And I think that might be getting caught up in the process a little bit. If it doesn't get happen in lame duck, I am almost certain it'll be revived when session starts over again. And at that point, they'll have until September. So we'll see. For our second favorite story of the year, we're going to turn to Jesse Balmer. And I would love to know, what did you love? So I would say this is a less poignant compilation of stories, but I... So a pivot here. A pivot, if you will. I I wanted to just bring us back to the chaos and, and weirdness that was the Ohio governor's race throughout the year with a compilation of stories. One was started, Angus wasn't the only beef going down at the Ohio Beef Expo this Saturday. And that was when Ohio governor Mike DeWine had a bit of a uh, conversation, if a you will. A tiff. A beef. Uh, <laughs> a beef, if you will, with a candidate, Joe Blystone, where he had a conversation about how he was going to soundly defeat Joe Blystone, but in, in slightly more colorful, more colorful language. language. <laughs> <laughs> I believe he said he was going to kick his ass. That is what is was. alleged to have been said. Yes. So <laughs> that was one just kind of fascinating turn of the Ohio governor's race. Another was when um, my pillow leader, Mike Lindell, endorsed and then kind of unendorsed Chamber Nacy. Oh, I forgot about this. Who was another, um, if you would say the, the endorsement unraveled a bit <laughs> over the weekend. So just the, uh, the kind of back and forth on that led to a, an interesting story. And then... Didn't he mispronounce Renacy's name? Yes. There was a like live stream, I believe, that he went on and could not pronounce the name of Jim Renacy, which, you know, to someone who doesn't know him as, as well, might be a more challenging last name to pronounce. But that was an interesting turn. And then uh, not to leave out, the Democrats uh, was able to, through a records request, obtain a text message chain between a number of Democratic mayors, both John Cranley and Nan Whaley, were candidates for Ohio governor and primary opponents. And they were in included on this text chain, along with a number of other Democratic mayors, but excluding former Cleveland mayor Frank Jackson. And just kind of their discussions about Mike DeWine, his choices, various other politicians, how they navigated the COVID-19 pandemic in frank and, you know, sometimes expletive-laden terms. Yeah, it was a group chat that they didn't think was going to be public. And then you made it public and everybody and their mother was reading it. Like, wasn't it one of your like best subscribed, best read stories? It was certainly one of the top stories as far as uh, like time on site, how much time people were spending with it. And I think it's because everyone has a voyeuristic interest in what these politicians are really thinking and really saying. And I will say their public positions were pretty consistent with their private positions. They were upset with Mike DeWine for signing bills to you know, eliminate training and licensure for concealed carry when he was not putting a mask mandate in effect as quickly as they would want. That was also a point of discussion. So some of this was not surprising, but just how casually they were discussing it, how how frank they were being was certainly outside of the norm as far as what people normally get to see from these interactions. And our third story comes from Laura Bischoff. So of 
all the stories you wrote last year. Which one or what series was your favorite? Well, I have to say it came in November when there was a ruling in federal court on a civil lawsuit over in the Dayton area. And it was uh, involving the case of Dean Gillespie. And Dean's a guy who I have been covering for 15 years off and on his story. I first met him. He was um, in prison on rape and kidnapping charges and has always maintained his innocence. About 10, 10 or 11 years ago, he was His uh, conviction was thrown out and he was released. And then more recently, he was named, officially declared as a wrongfully imprisoned person. So in November, his civil lawsuit against the police department and the police detective that handled his case, it went to trial and uh, Dean won a $45 million judgment. Oh, wow. And um, that puts him in the top 10, I think, uh, nationally for um, jury awards of this nature and definitely the biggest in Ohio history. And it really sends a message to police departments that police misconduct is, can be very costly. Not only is it financially costly, but then, you know, you have the wrong guy in prison for 20 years. And the r- true perpetrator of these crimes, you know, is likely elsewhere maybe has never been caught and could maybe be harming committed other, other crimes. Yeah. Right. And the, um, the police and the prosecutors really fought tooth and nail against Dean getting this kind of justice. And, you know, there's more than 3,000 exonerees nationwide. And I think the Ohio Innocence Project, um, Dean was, is a client of the Ohio Innocence Project. I think they have more than 30 exonerees in Ohio. And so, you know, it just really shows the enormous effort it takes to undo an injustice, like a, a wrongful imprisonment. Yeah. I mean, $45 million sounds like a lot of money. And objectively, it is a lot of money. But 20 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit, it's hard. Like, even if you game out how much he would have earned in an average salary or what kind of opportunities he missed. I don't know if he has family or children that he missed seeing grow up. Like, there's so much that you lose in 20 years behind bars. So... Dean is the same age as, as I am, and he he went in at age 24. Oh, my goodness. And he, so he he never married. He didn't have children. He didn't build a career. He didn't take vacations. He didn't get to, you know, go see nieces and nephews get married. You know, things that, that I've been able to do over, over that same span of time. Our fourth and final favorite story of the year is a profile that I wrote on Senate President Matt Huffman. And the lead was... Nothing becomes law in Ohio unless Matt Huffman says so. And let me tell you, a lot of people over at the State House had strong feelings about that start to my story. But it was my favorite for a couple of reasons. One is I don't write a lot of profiles. They're big, they're complicated, and they take a lot of time. And this one really stretched me as a writer. I worked with one of our fabulous story coaches, and I kid you not, I wrote this profile four times, guys. Like, I wrote it four times. It was also just, you know, fun to travel around with the Senate president. I finally got to try a Kewpie burger, which was delicious, by the way. And I got a sense of who Huffman was as a person and as one of the most powerful people in Ohio. It's it's good to kind of get a sense of who they are and, like, what their thinking is and how they come to decisions. And the story also unlocked a professional achievement that I never knew I wanted when Ohio's Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor quoted the story in one of her opinions on redistricting. So it was a nerdy, like a nerdy little checkbox that I was like, ooh, I didn't know I wanted to achieve that in my life.
life. And yet here we are. I think I really enjoyed that story just because a lot of people learned about Matt Huffman for the first time during the redistricting process, especially if you were watching it pretty carefully. He was a person who was talking more frequently than others. He was a person who was directing a lot of what was happening and the map making process. And so just to get a better sense of who he is and what makes him tick and what are his um, passions as a legislator was, I think, helpful for people to understand maybe this figure who was looming quite large over the maps. You know, it's interesting in the reporting realm of um, Cap Square, you know, we refer to them as the big three and it's the governor, the speaker of the house and the Senate president. And most Ohioans know who the governor is, Mike DeWine. It's been around for a long time, but most people don't know who the Senate president is and they don't know who the speaker is. And so I thought that the, that profile was good because it really did kind of pull the curtain back on somebody who is in position to block or move any legislation, you know, has a big sway over the budget, policies, appointments, and more. And one more thing before you go. I want to make a quick pitch to you, our listeners. If OPE is a podcast you enjoy, please consider giving us a present this holiday season by leaving a five-star review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered today, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like dispatch.com.